0: Even though Belshazzar heard the tales of what had happened when Nebuchadnezzar had messed with the God of Israel, he had the, the gall, the temerity, to have a party, have a pagan orgy with the very instruments that had been taken from Jehovah's temple. You have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven, and you have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you drank wine from them. The party's over. The reckoning, that's written on the wall. The king was terrified. Out of nowhere, a hand had begun to write on the far wall. And nobody could understand what the hand had written. Nobody except Daniel. What did these words say? We'll find out in today's sermon from Daniel 5. things seem to be going good for us, we can think that those times are going to last forever. When things are going good, we tend to think that the good times are here to stay. Now, is that the way life works? Well, not so much. Life is not so much a straight line. Life is more like a sine curve, if you've ever seen it. There's ups and there's downs, there's peaks, and there's valleys. With that said, in today's text, we're going to encounter a king who's going to be partying like it's 1999, as if his reign and his rule are, are never going to end. The good times are here to stay. In other words, we're going to encounter a king who's going to be having one of the most decadent parties that's ever been had, and yet in the very midst of his party, in the very midst of his party, his reign, his world, even his life will be taken from it. His reign, his world, his life will come to a shocking and immediate end. Now, what's going to happen? What's going to interrupt all the revelry? Well, let's find out as we look at verses 1 through 4 of the text now, and then we'll work our way through the passage. verse 1. So Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and the silver which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine, and they praised the gods of silver and of gold, of bronze and of iron, of wood and of stone. All right. In verse 1, we're introduced to a new character. If you remember, the first few chapters, the first four chapters in the book of Daniel had actually been about Nebuchadnezzar more so than anybody else. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been kind of a supporting cast. In the first four chapters, King Nebuchadnezzar and the grace that ultimately God poured out upon Nebuchadnezzar was the focus of the first four chapters. Well, here in chapter 5, verse 1, immediately we see the name of a new guy. We see the name of a new king, this guy named Belshazzar. Now, Belshazzar, for years, for centuries, there was a lot of dispute in the scholarly circles whether this guy ever existed, because the only record of Belshazzar was in the scriptural canon. But in 1854, an in area that we know as Ur, if you're looking at a biblical map, four clay cylinders were dug up, and they identified Belshazzar by name in these cylinders. And from what scripture and these cylinders suggest, Belshazzar was the son of another king. He was the son of another Babylonian king named Nabonidus, But the elder king had not passed. He was still alive. However, he had moved. He had moved his reign and his rule a a long way. It was across the sands of the Arabian Desert. Now, given Nabonidus' distance from Babylon, he could no longer rule the city himself. He was too far away. So what he did was he appointed this guy, Belshazzar, to uh, reign in his stead. So Belshazzar was more of a co-regent, so to speak, a steward, really. Even though he's identified here as a king, he's, he's really still second in power. Now, one presumes that that was a temporary arrangement, that Nabonidus would eventually return. However, unfortunately for old Nabonidus, he would never see the city again. See, Babylon, as we talked about in the first four chapters, it was the mightiest city of of its age, the mightiest empire. It uh, led when it came to civil affairs, academic affairs, scholarly affairs, arts, sciences, and the like. Babylon was the place to be. However, after Nebuchadnezzar's death, they fell upon hard times in a number of ways, partly because they had just a, a series of just really rotten leaders. And the history abhors a vacuum. So at that time, there was a guy named Cyrus, Cyrus, leader of the Medes and the Persians, who had rose in power, and his kingdom had grown strong with the defeat of the Assyrians. And Cyrus had Babylon right in his sight. And in about 539, this king, Nabonidus, he came with his army from outside Babylon to attack Cyrus' army, which was about 50 miles outside, outside of the city. But the king, Nabonidus, and his army were defeated. They didn't expect to be defeated, but they were quite handily. And the Babylonian king was captured. And that brings us to today's text. The man that's identified here in verse 1 of today's text, Belshazzar, again, he's less of a king and more of a co-regent. He was the son of the, the traveling king. He was less of a king and more of a steward, maybe even a kind of a, a, royal, um, a royal idiot who had been left in charge, left in charge while daddy was away. That's another way you might look at this. Now, how can we say such a thing? I don't know the guy. How do we know he was an idiot? Well, let's, let's uh, extrapolate from what we have in Scripture, and you decide for yourselves whether this guy had all, his, uh, all the marbles were functioning well. Here's the facts. The Medes and the Persians. Remember, they've grown in power. They are not far from your city's doors. They have just wiped out the, the majority of the Babylonian army. They've just captured your father and taken him away. What is your response? You're in the city, you're in Babylon. Suddenly, dad's gone. Your army has been routed by this enemy. The enemy has its sights set on you, set on your city. What's your response? Did you go with and, and sit down with your generals and your officers and plan some military strategy to help defeat the enemy? Is that what you do? Well, whatever you might do... Belshazzar did the opposite. Belshazzar says, you know what? It's time to party. It's time to party. Now, why would he party? Well, principally for this reason. To the degree we can get inside this guy's mind, this is principally what we can speculate as the reason. See, there was a, a great sense of confidence in the city and in its gates and in its walls and in its defenses. There was a sense in which they believed that Babylon was impenetrable, that it could never be taken. Now, to some extent, that confidence was warranted. The city was unlike any others. Its outer walls were about 17 miles long to the nearest we can figure. The walls were about 22 feet thick, so there was no plan just to go right, right through them. And they were about 90 feet high in the most vulnerable spots. Beyond that, inside those walls, there were still more walls. There was a series of moats and inner, inner walls and outer walls and the like, and all that contributed to a sense that no one was coming in. No one was coming in. And that gave Belshazzar a sense of confidence, a sense of confidence, and no matter what happened outside the city that they were secure within. And to have a party, in his mind's eye, might have been a way to demonstrate publicly to his people, to his lords and the like, that we are safe. Having a party while you're in Major Gates demonstrates great confidence. And that may have been what he was, what he was looking to do. That still doesn't explain why he got drunk on the very night his city was ransacked. But nevertheless, it may have been some confidence that he had here when he hosted this bacchanalia for a thousand of his closest friends and tapped the Babylonian keg and had a good time. But Dushazar didn't stop there. He went on to do something that angered the God of heaven. He went on to do something that he ought not to have done. After having tasted the wine, we see in the first few verses, after having tasted the wine, which depending on how you interpret the original languages might imply that he had gotten drunk in the process, Belshazzar looked at the cups and the goblets that they were using and he decided that that he had another plan. These things were not good enough, at least for this particular party, and so in what you might call a fatal error born of great pride and great hubris, Belshazzar says in his mind's eye, he says, You know what? Years ago, my grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, he conquered Jerusalem. And if I remember right, he took with him everything that they had, and the the temple and the like, all the temple vessels, instruments, and so forth. Let's bring them in. Let's bring all the goods that belong to that God, that belong to that temple, that belong to those people who we've oppressed. Let's take their stuff and let's incorporate that in the party. So in verse 4, we see that the vessels are brought in, and and they began to not only drink from the vessels, but they praised the gods of gold and of silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. I think it goes without saying that praising gods of of gold and silver while you're drinking from Jehovah's cutlery is probably not the wisest of plans. So let's see what happens next as we look at verses 5 through 9. Verse 5. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote, wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote, Then the king's countenance changed. I like how the New King James put it. You could say that his face went white, his eyes bugged out of his his head, his jaw dropped. The king's countenance changed. His thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. What a sight this must have been. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. How well did that work out in chapter 2 and chapter 4 when we studied in the previous chapters? He does the same thing, the same mistake that Nebuchadnezzar made back in the day. He calls all the wrong guys, all the, all the goofballs of Babylon, and he brings them on in to give them some sense of what's going on. And he says in verse 7, Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in my kingdom. Now why not second? Because he was second. Remember? You have Nabonidus is the king. He is second. He's a kind of co-regent. And he's saying, whoever can do this, he's going to be right after me. He's going to be third in the kingdom. Now, where is it? all the king's wise men came, but they, they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Surprise, surprise. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed, perhaps even further than before, and his lords were astonished. Now, way back in Daniel one, several decades earlier. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar reigned for about 43 years. After Nebuchadnezzar had attacked Jerusalem, He had taken a bunch of the people. Remember, he took the best and the brightest. That included Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So he took the best people from Jerusalem to Babylon, and he also took all the temple goods, because that's what you do. In that Old Testament economy, when you conquered a nation, you made sure to ransack the temple. You took the goods and and those things that belonged to the temple and those things that were used in worship of another god. And that was a way of saying that our gods are supreme over yours, our nation is supreme over yours. So that's why Nebuchadnezzar had done it. He'd taken all the temple goods. And brought them in as, as trophy trophies, really. Well, in today's text again, Belshazzar takes those trophies and he says, "Let's bring them in. Let's play with them. Let's drink them. Let's make them part of this this orgy of excess. Let's bring in God's temple goods and use them for this this end." Well, that that, as we said earlier, offended the God of heaven. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar, as we talked about last week, Nebuchadnezzar did a lot of of naughty things. And ultimately, it was when he tried to rob from God's glory that God came to call. Remember, the words are still coming out of Nebuchadnezzar's mouth, and God intervenes. He stops him in his tracks while the words are still on the king's lips. He stops him. God is patient. He's really patient. He was patient for Nebuchadnezzar for some time. I think he was patient with Belshazzar for some time as well. However, this occurrence, this event, taking the temple goods and using them for this end, that wasn't going to fly with God. And so he stopped. He intervened with this hand. You could say God is the original party crasher because he brought this party to a halt with his hand writing on the wall. Verse 5 says, the hand appeared opposite a lampstand, began to write some undecipherable phrases upon the wall. And the king, as we see, he freaked out, his knees knocked together, and he's desperate to figure out what's going on. He puts out a, an APB, all-points Babylon. Anyone can come in and tell me what's going on. That's, that's what he's looking for. Let's look at verses 10 through 16. Then the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. And the queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, are found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, let me stop there for just a moment. The word father in this case is used for, for anyone who is of paternal origin. So a grandfather, it still applies with the, the text Your father, the king, made him the chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel from the king named Belteshazzar, now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. Look at the confidence that the queen has, because she remembered. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my father, the king, brought from Judah? He didn't even recognize Daniel. At one point, Daniel had been one of the most powerful men in all the kingdom. He had the king's ear. He was mighty and powerful and great influence. But that influence had waned to the point that this guy looks at him and he doesn't even recognize him. Then he says in verse 14, I have heard of you that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now, the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not. They could not give the interpretation of this thing. And I have heard of you that you can you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. As we said before, back in the time of King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel and his three friends had already, in the past, been given the gold and had been appointed to high office. Daniel had apparently had a very close relationship with King Nebuchadnezzar. But after Nebuchadnezzar's death, after Nebi's death, Daniel's power and influence were gone. They waned very quickly in the 10 years, give or take, that followed. And over the administrations that followed Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel became an afterthought in Babylon to the point that Belshazzar had to be reminded about this guy and about his God-given ability to do the very thing that he needed most, which was to interpret dreams, or excuse me, to interpret, in this case, an enigma, as Scripture says. So in verses 10 through 16, it's the queen who reminds the king. It's the queen who comes in and says, "Oh, king, live forever, and proceeds to say that, hey, you remember that guy, that guy Daniel? He goes, who? Yeah, tell me more. And she unpacks a little bit of the story, and then he says, okay, let's bring, bring this guy in. Now, imagine you're Daniel. Uh, who knows what you've been doing? You're kind of in semi-retirement. You're no longer used as you once were used for the kingdom. You're off somewhere, and all of a sudden, you're summoned. You've heard all the noise. You know that there's an army outside. You hear all the noise coming from the banquet hall somewhere at the, at the center of Babylon. All the parting and all the excess, you've heard all that. You want no part of that, but then the summons. And then someone says, come on in. Get on over here because we need you. Now, can you imagine Daniel's face when he walked into that room? Can you imagine Daniel's face when he walks into this banquet hall? And he takes it all in. He walks into the banquet hall. This is Daniel the righteous, Daniel the holy, Daniel the prophet, Daniel the virtuous. And he walks in this banquet hall. And again, everyone's drunk. There's an orgy to some extent going on or having had gone on in the premises. There's handwriting on the wall. The king's... Is looking like a, a broken man, but then, as amazing as all that is, and you're having to hide your eyes from so much of what you're seeing, then you look and you notice that so many of the people seem to be utilizing drinking vessel instruments that belong in the temple, in the temple of Jerusalem. One minute you're just kind of averting your eyes, you know, it's stranger danger everywhere, and you're trying not to not to look up, you're finding you want to look for a corner to go and be sick in, and then you get angry. If you see what they're doing. And then you see what they're doing and connect what they've done to what you see on the wall, Daniel probably had a good sense of what was happening. If he didn't know, walking in, he knew very shortly thereafter. And the king says, come here, Daniel, come here, come here, come here. And Daniel stands for him, and you've got to think, he had all sorts of things in Daniel's mind he wanted to say, but the king speaks, and the king says, hey, can you interpret this, this for me? Can you do me this favor? Well, let's look and see what Daniel responds, how he responds in verses 17 through 21. Then Daniel answered and said to the king, Let your gifts be for yourself. Keep your stuff, O Belshazzar. Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. And yet, I will, yet I will read the writing to the king, and I'll make known to you the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory, and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples and nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whoever he wished, he executed. Whoever he wished, he kept alive. Whoever he wished, he set up. Whoever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. And then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts. His dwelling was with the wild donkey. He fed him with grass like ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven. Until he knew. Until he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whoever he chooses. Verses 17 through 21, Daniel is giving Belshazzar a history lesson. What's the old saying, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it? I don't know if that maxim holds up in every instance, sure holds up here. Belshazzar didn't recall, didn't remember, or just didn't care. Some combination, all those things. But he was going right down the road, or he had gone right down the road, of Nebuchadnezzar. Well, things hadn't turned out so well for Nebuchadnezzar when he had raised his eyes and raised his fist and raised his statue and so forth against the the God of all creation. God intervened. Now, in the case of Nebuchadnezzar, God intervened with grace. I'm not so sure Belshazzar is going to receive the same grace. In any case, Daniel reminds the king of what happened. Now, God had humbled his royal predecessor. On multiple occasions in the past, Daniel had been in that very same situation. He'd been brought in because the king was white-faced and shaking and knees-knocking. He'd had a vision, he'd had a dream, and he needed to explain. Daniel had been there done that. And on those occasions, Daniel had interpreted dreams. Remember in chapters 2 and 4, he'd interpreted dreams for Nebuchadnezzar. He did this with some regularity. Now, one of the dreams that involved a statue. Remember it was a statue, a tall, mighty statue, and the top, the head, was gold. And in the interpretation of the the dream, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that Babylon, his reign, his rule, was that gold head. It was a a golden head. However, below on the statue, there were various other precious metals, from silver and bronze and all the way down to feet mixed with clay, that represented other kingdoms that would follow Nebuchadnezzar. His kingdom was great. His kingdom was golden. His kingdom was impressive. His kingdom was mighty. But it would not last. It would not stand, is what Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar. There would be other kingdoms other kingdoms that would come that would follow it, that would replace it. In short, Daniel had told Nebuchadnezzar that Babylon, his empire, would crumble and it would be replaced by something else. Here in Daniel 5, right at this very moment of time, as Daniel is brought once again before a, a king of Babylon, it's happening. The moment has come. Transition is imminent. Enemies are at the gates. There are only minutes, hours, till that transition is complete. Daniel says to Belshazzar, remember this, the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. You think you rule and all your party and all your excess and all your wine and everything you're doing, you think you're something else, you think you're hot stuff? The God of heaven, the Most High, rules over the kingdom of men. And he gives it to whomever he chooses. Guess what, Belshazzar? You not it. Your kingdom is going to be removed. Let's look at verses 22 through 29. But you, his son, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. He implies that at one point he'd heard the stories, at one point he knew what was going on, and yet he'd forgotten it to put his knowledge on the shelf. Verse 23, and you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, you and your lords and your wives and your concubines, and you've drank wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and of gold and of bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see nor hear nor know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Wow, what a terrible epitaph on anyone's life that is. Verse 24. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is the inscription. Mene, mene, tekel, a parson. And this is the interpretation of those words. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom, and he has finished it. He has numbered your kingdom, he has finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances, and you have been found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And then Belshazzar gave the command, and they clothed Daniel with purple, put a chain of gold around his neck, and they made a proclamation concerning him that he should be third ruler in the kingdom. That would fly for about another ten minutes, two hours. His time, as third in the kingdom, would not be long. Daniel knew it. And the verses that preceded these last ones, Daniel had reminded the king about how God had once instructed Nebuchadnezzar in times past. He reminded the king that the God of Israel is the God of everything. Remember, in, in times of antiquity, there's this idea that you have your God, I have my God, they have their gods, so that there was a plethora of gods, so to speak, a lot of different gods. And they had different powers, and they had different jurisdictions and the like, so there was always hitting one God against another God as if that's the way it works. Of course, that's that's not the way it works. And Daniel reminds Belshazzar of this. He says, the God of Israel is the God of everything. And he says, when your grandfather forgot that, or when he didn't acknowledge that, God has dealt with it. And I was dealing with you, Belshazzar, because you have not humbled your heart, although you knew all of it. Even though Belshazzar had heard the tales of what had happened when Nebuchadnezzar had messed with the God of Israel, he had the, the gall, the temerity, to have a party, have a pagan orgy with the very instruments that had been taken from Jehovah's temple. You have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven, and you have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you drank wine from them. The party's over, That's what Daniel tells the king. party's over. Food service is done. Wine service is finished. It's time for the check, the reckoning that's written on the wall. Time for reckoning with the God that Belshazzar had offended. Reckoning that came in four words, mene, mene, tekel, a Now, Belshazzar as an individual and his reign and his kingdom, more or less, had, had been weighed, had been measured, and found wanting. Probably, most singularly, in morality, and righteousness, and in godliness, had been found wanting. His kingdom was about to be divided given to another. Now, how long, again, would it take for that prophecy to come to fruition? Well, not long at all. Let's look at our final verses, verses 30 and 31. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. At the very moment, the Daniel, his words are echoing through the hall, and I'm sure everyone who was in earshot was listening attentively. At the moment, but Daniel's words were echoing through the banquet hall. History tells us that outside, the Medes and the Persians, who'd been plotting an attack for some time, had figured a way in, had figured a way into this impenetrable city. A city that trusted in its walls and its strength and the power of its walls, the irony was that the enemy was going to circumvent those walls. Babylon put up walls thinking no one can get through them. Well, no one did go through them. They had a different plan. The very moment that these words were being uttered to the king, Uh, There's a historian named Herodotus. He records that on this particular night, in the year 539 B.C., the Medes and the Persians, they dammed up the Euphrates. They dammed up the river upstream. And what that had the impact of doing was it lowered the waters that were flowing into the city. It created a dry bed, and it allowed the enemy to come in underneath. It allowed the enemy to come underneath the city rather than to break through the walls or come over them. The waters were low enough. The Persians snuck under the wall, and when they went in, they found everyone drunk. Drunk or or sleeping, they killed the guards, they opened the gates, let everyone else in. Some have suggested that not a spear was thrown in defense of the city. That it was that quick. It was over before they knew it. On the basis of this attack, the Belshazzar and all his lords never saw coming. They were blind to their greatest vulnerability, and it cost them. Because that's where the point of attack came. I'll say just this much on that regard. You and I, we can be blind to the point of our greatest vulnerability. And guess what? That's where the attack will come. Our enemy is not stupid and he's not toothless. He comes to us where we are most vulnerable. Belshazzar, his city was vulnerable in this one regard. So that's the way the enemy came. A few minutes, few hours, whatever the case is, it was over. And verse 28, Daniel prophesied. He says, King, it's over. Party's over. You're done for. Two verses later, the king's dead. Two verses later, for the night had even had even ended. Now, with our remaining moments, I want to I want to build or at least observe a few things on that last point. You know, great civilizations. Don't come to power overnight. Great civilizations, it takes time for great civilizations to, to rise. They don't develop instantly in a single evening. It's not you a know, packet, just add water, and you get civilizations. It's nothing like that. It takes time. It takes decades, maybe even centuries for it to occur. However, it can sure end fast. It takes a long time for a civilization to, to rise, sort of power and, and confidence and might and authority and clout and fame that Babylon had had takes a while for great civilizations to rise into power, but it can sure end quickly. It can sure end fast. In First Thessalonians 5, the Apostle Paul reminds us of this when he says this. He says, while people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction comes. Sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Belshazzar was claiming peace and security. Belshazzar and everyone else in the city thought the good times were here to stay. The days of wine and roses, they weren't going to end. They thought they had nothing to fear. But then, sudden destruction for many who live in the last days, whenever those should be. It will not be different. I'm not a prophet. I'm not a son of a prophet. But I'll go out on a limb here. I'll go out on a limb and say that any nation that's led by the spirit of Babylon, any nation that models or emulates Babylon, sins and its debauchery, should not be shocked. If it faces Babylon's fate, look at the Babylonians. Look at the Medes and Persians. Look what happened to them. Look at the Romans. Look at their end. Look at Sodom and Gomorrah. For that matter, think of Jericho. Its walls were something else, too. Look of Pharaoh, resting on all his army and chariots, and then the floodwaters swept in from the sea around him. Think of all those proud and arrogant folks who lived in the time of Noah. Think of the entire civilization. How fast God can bring unstoppable rain. There's no hegemony in all history that has not fallen. Not one. Not one, not ever. The kingdom of God remains. The kingdom of God remains. This is one of the great irons. If you're a student of history at all, even if you're just an acquaintance with history, you can look back and see that every nation of strength and prowess, every nation that has been the pinnacle of the pinnacle at some time in history past and centuries ago, every one of them is gone. Every one of them. You know what Babylon is now? It's ruins. It's in the dustbin of history. It's been no different. The Medes, the Persians, the Romans, the, the Greeks, Sodom, and Gomorrah. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. God has no problem shaking up the status quo. He's done it time and time again and sometimes he uses unexpected means to do it. Well, that said, something that's encouraging to us is that God, even as he does this, he always preserves a remnant. God always sustains his own. He always preserves a remnant. See, while it's true that Belshazzar died in today's text, guess what? Daniel lived. Belshazzar and his lords and and many died in today's text. Daniel lived. Sodom and Gomorrah, what happened to them? They died. But guess what? Lot and his family lived. That's true that floods swept the earth. Guess what? Noah's family, they lived. God preserves a remnant. It is true that God is angry at the wicked every day, no doubt about it, but he also preserves a remnant from his wrath. That's what the Gospel is all about. Those who deserve God's wrath, those who who are really fundamentally no different from the Belshazzars and Nebuchadnezzars and and, uh, those in Sodom and Gomorrah and the like, God yet determines to save some. God uh, preserves those that he has placed his saving hand upon. God has routinely done this, even as he brings in judgment. That's one of the best examples I haven't even mentioned is the Passover. God dealt with Pharaoh. God dealt with Egypt. The angel of death came through the land, and yet a remnant was spared. How? They were spared because their doors were marked by the blood of the Lamb. It is no different. Our hope in a world of, of tumult, our hope in a world of hurricanes, those of nature and those made by men, our hope is in Jesus Christ. Our hope is the provision that is found in his own blood. God routinely places loving arms around his faithful. Even if the angel of death should enter a land, he continues to preserve his own. This week, let me encourage you. Let me encourage you as individuals and as family to separate yourselves to separate yourself from the spirit of Babylon and from the wicked influences of this wicked age. As individuals as families, we're called to separate ourselves from the spirit of Babylon, even if the city of Babylon is long gone. May you and I be as sick of evil, sick of the evil of our culture, as Daniel wasn't his when he entered into that hall, as repulsed by it, not complicit with it, that God might perceive you and I as a remnant, the remnant of faithfulness in the midst of a faithless being. Let's pray. The Bible says that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word. If today's sermon's been helpful or encouraging for you, then check back tomorrow for another study of God's Word.